Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. which is our word here in Hawaii, that means many things. Hello, goodbye, I love you. But the last part of that is ha, to breathe life into one another. And when we really love people, that's like we're gracing them. That ha is like, I want you to receive grace and love to one another. So this week and the next time that I'm with you in this series of getting along better with one another, I would like you to remember not only grace, but when you think of grace, I want you to think of God. I want you to think of Christ. I want you to think of how unworthy we are of His grace. And He's graced us with all of our imperfections. I like to call it all of our isms and spasms. And then He says, I want you to be like Christ. And that doesn't mean we walk on water and grow a beard or whatever. What we really do is we grace other people who also have imperfections, isms and spasms. One person says hurts, hang-ups and bad habits. And we want to do that. Now, you might be thinking that I'm just giving this message because I think there's a lot of unhappy people here in our church and a lot of people that aren't gracing one another. One of the privileges and the benefits of preaching expositorily is that you just kind of preach through the Word and you let the Spirit of God kind of take you through the Word and the people are there at the same time and there's no personal acts that I have to grind with any one of you. So if I come and say something in my message and I kind of scratch you where you itch or poke you in a wound that you already have, I want you to know that there is nothing in my sermon that has any one person specifically in mind other than maybe myself. Because when you go through all of this stuff, you want to walk the talk as well as talk the talk. So it's in my life. Notice what I didn't title this message. I didn't title it Getting Along With Your Enemies or Getting Along With Difficult People. There are sermons and messages for that that are needed. But this is just how to get along better with one another. How many of you would like to get along better with your mate, your kids, your parents, and one another here on our island? Would you raise your hand? I would like to do that. And God gives us the formula right here in Romans as Paul is speaking to the people there at Rome, the believers particularly. Now here's what's interesting. He realizes though that people are going to be different. I mentioned to you before, there are a lot of Jewish people in this church that were now born again Jews. They trusted Christ as their Messiah. And then you had Gentile people that worshipped their idols and did all the stuff perhaps necessary to appease their idol in their mind. At least they thought that that God was their idol. And they came to faith in Christ. So we can call them converted Gentiles. But in a sense, they're still Christians, just like the Jewish Christians were. But then again, you know, like any church, you're going to have people that came to faith in Christ, so that we will call them baby Christians. And then you have those that are growing in their grace, in, in, the, in the grace of the Lord, and in faith. And they're becoming more mature Christians. Then you have people with various ethnic background, various uh, male and female, and various uh, perhaps walks of life. Some are wealthy, some are not so wealthy. Some are in business, some are just common workers, some are slaves, and some are military people. Could be even some people that are involved in government. All different kinds of people in the church. That in itself is a breeding ground for conflict. Wouldn't you agree? You know, polarization, and I don't like you, or you don't like me, or I'm better than you, etc. Where does that come from? Human nature. You know, when I trust Christ as Savior, I have the Spirit of God within me that's making me more like Christ, but I still have that old flesh that's a part of me, and sometimes uh, it gets out, and we have those issues. So we want to get along better with one another. Now, we've been talking about a relationship with God, a relationship with the church, a relationship with other believers, a relationship with um, uh, 
uh, our enemies, a relationship with the government, even a relationship with ourselves. last week, make the rest of your life be the best of your life. Now I want to talk about having a better relationship with one another, whoever they might be, particularly in the body of Christ. I can't get too far away from that because our church is going to be going through some changes over this next year. I don't know all what those changes are going to be, and that's not to be a buzzword or a flash word with you to start getting worried, but everything is inevitable. It, it needs to change. I'm convinced that the change is pointing in the direction of something very good. So that's going to be good change for us. But when change occurs, some people, they get excited about change. Man, they, they, they can't stand one thing all the time. Others, they like to cocoon. They sit in the same seats every week. And if someone got there ahead of them, it's like, what are you doing in my seat? You know, kind of a thing. We never change kind of thing. Well, again, no matter what we go through in life, we have to be prepared for that because God, watch this, God brought us together. And now we really want to stay together and grow together and grow to become more like him. So I pray that today's message and next week's message might be a real blessing to you. If you will, take out your little outline that you have, if you'd like, and you can follow along and maybe jot some notes down and use it for further reference. This is just the beginning part of our little uh, journey through getting along better with one another, but it's a good place to begin. Now, before I go through this, I need to kind of set the stage of exactly to whom he is referring here. So listen carefully. In this particular group, he's not so much referring to those that were politicians or military people because of their uh, position in life. He's really addressing them as being what we might refer to as a strong Christian. We'll use the term mature Christian and those who are not a strong Christian, an immature Christian. This is also important. You can be an immature, a weak Christian, even though you've been a Christian for many, many years. You can be a mature Christian and be saved for just a few years. It's all dependent upon whether or not you want the Spirit of God to begin to change you and you are doing the spiritual habits that will help facilitate that with the Spirit of God. So I don't want you to look at how long you've been a Christian or not. It's more how long you've had a surrendered life to the Lord and known how to do that. So he's really speaking to strong Christians and weak Christians, mature Christians and immature Christians. But he, as you read between the lines, as I'll explain this, he's also addressing the two groups of people ethnically, in a sense. One, you have the Jewish people. They have a certain style of looking at God that they bring with them from their background of belief. Then you have the Gentiles, Christians, that are bringing into their new Christianity some thoughts and feelings, emotions and opinions about what they were going through in their early days before they came to know Christ. And now they're in the church. Now we're not just talking about mature and immature. We're just talking about two different groups that got saved, but they still have some, you ready for this? Baggage. They still have some, perhaps some, some grave clothes on them, so to speak. So they come into this. So I don't want you to think Jewish people are better than Gentile Christians and vice versa. It's just talking about what they're bringing into this. Now, with that, you're going to have some what we'll call liberated Jewish people. They've trusted Christ, and they don't have that baggage. And then you have those that have all different levels of baggage as a Jewish believer. Same is true for Gentiles. Some have just thrown off the shackles of their Gentile belief system totally, and they embrace Christianity. They're liberated. The others I'm going to use just as a general term, more legalistic. They have their little box here. And that little box, they kind of, they need that box. They live by that box. They attach that box to their belief system. Not necessarily that they're trusting that little box to get them to heaven, but it's their little box on how they're going to live their Christian life on both sides of that. Are you tracking with me so far? 
All right? I don't want to give you any more confusion, but I wanted you to see what those boxes are that they're going to have them. Now let's come up for air a little bit and give you a little general thought on this. See if you might sense this as well. Let's say I have a circle up here, and on this circle, on the outside of that circle is the most tremendous amount of freedom and liberty that you know that once you trust Christ as Savior, you are forever saved, and you could almost do anything you want, all right? So that's on the farthest outside of the circle. There are people, when they get saved, they're just going to push that envelope like an arrow going to the very outside of that circle. They're going to live their life no matter what because it doesn't matter. Their sins are paid for. Then you have others that when they trust Christ as Savior, they start thinking, well, maybe the more holy I am, I need to be very much at the center of that circle right there. And so they now start attaching what they believe is what's necessary for them to be mature and spiritual, but tends to be a lot of man-made stuff because they're trying to put all of that together. They're trying to define it. They're trying to make it work for them because if they do all of this little stuff, then they're going to be really spiritual. Now you have these two groups. The group that's at the center of the circle looks at the ones that are pushing to the outside of the circle and saying, you guys are sinners. You guys are going to be judged. And the ones that are far on the other side of the circle, they're looking at the center of the circle saying, you guys are legalist and you're never going to grow. You're too binding. Don't you know that Jesus sets us free? And so now that sets up, and there's all different people, different levels, for potential conflict in a family, in a marriage, in a church, on an island, on a job, in a ministry, wherever it might be. So Paul is really speaking to this and how wise the Holy Spirit is to drop this in the middle of Romans or pretty much at the end of Romans because these folks are going to have to live with them through the coming persecution that's only going to get worse and worse and worse. Doesn't that sound like it's us today? I mean, I, I pick up the newspaper. I can't, I mean, I, we are, I don't know we can ever turn our country around apart from God miracle in here and things are going to get worse and worse. So if it's going to get worse and worse, do you know what? Watch this. Listen, listen. We need each other more and more. We need to love on each other more and more. We need to do what we're going to learn today more and more for each other. There's only four points. They're pretty easy. I think you can track along, follow easily. So let's go to number one. Why should we treat and how can we treat each other better and better and love on each other more and more? Well, it's easy because God has accepted us. Remember that. God has accepted us. I'm going to read to you the first three verses and then I'll make some comments on it. It begins by saying, now accept the one who is weak. Immediately when I look at that phrase, that's telling me that even though he's speaking to two different groups, he begins this paragraph by speaking to those who are mature first. So now for a moment, if you think you're a mature Christian, assume that he's speaking to you now. He says, now accept the one who is weak. So he's telling you and me to look at those who are immature in the faith, weak in the faith, and we need to not marginalize them, criticize them, condemn them, but we need to accept them. And that word accept isn't more of a passive, it's a command. He says, now you do this, whether you feel like it or not, you need to accept the one who is weak in faith. Now, I don't know what version of the Bible that you have in front of you, but in some versions it says weak in faith, some might say in the faith. But actually in the Greek, it's not just weak in faith, so it is telling me that it's talking about Christians here, weaker Christians, because in the Greek it's in the faith. There are a lot of unsaved people that are strong in faith, and some are going to be weak in faith. So he's not talking about a general population, he's talking about those that are in the faith, once delivered unto the saints. So it's talking about those that are saved. So he's saying, now accept those who are weak in the faith. But not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions, 
Meaning this, don't just accept them so that you can continue to criticize them. Don't just accept them into your fellowships, into your life, into your family, into your church, just so that you can judge them and put them down and make them feel more guilty and show them how stupid they are. No, he says, for other reasons. Then he says, one person has faith that he may eat all things. Now that's interesting. But then it says, but he who is weak thinks he can eat vegetables only. So the one who eats is not to regard with contempt. And by the way, that would be the strong one looking to the weak one. To, the one to contempt, the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. Now underline this, if you will, or circle it. For God has accepted him, meaning both of those guys he's accepted. Now that's a lot of words in there. Accept, don't accept, do this, don't do that. So look up here, if you will, for a moment. I'm going to step away from the pulpit so you can kind of maybe get a bigger picture here. All right, you have the Jewish people. What was some of the baggage they might have brought into the church as believers in Christ? Well, if you remember, the Jews had a whole lot of laws. Part of their laws were what we would call dietary laws. And the dietary laws would basically say you don't eat pork. Dietary laws would say you don't eat shellfish, crabs and lobsters and shrimp and stuff that would be bottom feeders, that kind of thing. It would say don't eat fish that don't have scales. If they have scales, you could eat them. So in a sense here it says there's certain food that you can't eat, certain food you can eat. So now you have the Jews that are maybe bringing into this saying I better not eat this, I better eat that. If I'm more spiritual, I'm more like the laws and I better not do this. Well, he doesn't just talk to the Jewish people. He's also talking to the Gentiles. Now these Gentiles who worshipped idols, they had a problem with their food too. You see, they would look at their idol and they had in their belief system that this idol represented their God. And their God would be better served if I would give that God the very best meat that I have and I would give them that meat. And if they didn't have that meat, they would then go out and buy that meat. Now once that meat was offered to the idol, they didn't let it rot. They would then take that offered meat that was given to that idol. The priest would do whatever he needed to do over this thing. And then that meat would go back out there again for people to either purchase or get or share with one another. But that meat then was called meat that was, past tense, offered to idols. So now these Gentile people here, they would say, I, I really can't eat that because that was offered to an idol and I'm not spiritual. I don't want anything to do with anything that was offered to a God that's not the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm not going to eat that. And so now you got people that wouldn't eat that. And they would see someone that would go after that meat and say, it's not pork, it's just meat. I can go ahead and buy it and eat it. And they would go, <gasps> so you see how the conflict goes? Because again, these little boxes that these people made... Their hearts, I believe, with all my heart, they were right. They were trying to do what was right, but they were immature. And that's what Paul is saying. We need to help them grow. And we do that by accepting them and then helping them go through the process of where that liberty really takes them. Now, some of you are wondering, well, how far do you push that envelope on liberty? What do you do with that liberty? How far can you go as a Christian with your liberty, you know? Ah, you have to be back for the second half of the message because I'm going to talk about that then. So let me give you some of the thoughts here so you might have this. And that is the weaker Jewish Christians, so you could write that in your little notes there, would probably not eat pork or certain seafood. The weaker Gentiles wouldn't eat the meat that was offered to pagan deity. And Paul says the stronger should not condemn or despise or look down on those who are weak that felt like they couldn't eat these certain foods. And the weak shouldn't judge those that were stronger and say, hey, you ought to not do that. You ought to set aside your meat. You, you better stop eating that. You're sinning. You're not holy. 
So the whole point Paul is making is that God accepts both regardless of their position and so should every believer. And I would like you to remember that in light of perhaps if a Christian can have alcohol. Where's the line on that? Can a Christian do a hula? What's the line on that? And so we have to kind of keep these things in place because some of that, there are those that have some issues that they bring with them and then some have a tremendous amount of liberty. So how do we make it work? Well, Paul says, I'm showing you right here. The Lord's telling me, prompting me to give you this information. Now, if you don't mind, I'd like to go on a little sidebar. I've done this for the last 10 years that I've been here. Occasionally, when I see something of deity in Scripture that you normally wouldn't pay attention to, I bring it to your attention so you can see it. I want to show you the beauty of the deity. Are you ready to do that? Because I want you to see this, that the deity is mentioned so many times in these 12 verses showing you the strength of the deity behind the simple Christian living truths that we're hearing now. So get your pencils ready. Here we go. If you look at the very beginning of this, you're going to see who is mentioned first of the deity. In verse 3 it says, For God has accepted him. My next point in our outline, I'm going to change that. The Lord supports us. So I went from God to Lord. Where do I get that? In verse 4, circle the word Lord. He was able to make him stand. Now go to verse 6. You're going to find the word Lord mentioned not once, not twice, but three times. So you have God, and now you have Lord three times. But also in verse 6, if you have your Bible, you're going to see the word God mentioned. So in one verse, Lord is three times, God is mentioned twice. Don't stop there. If you go to verse 8, you're going to find the word Lord is mentioned three times there. Lord, Lord, Lord. And then in verse 9, you see Christ and Lord both mentioned. So what you're seeing is God, Lord, Christ, the deity. Again, Paul is bringing him into this teaching here. Watch this very carefully. Listen carefully. It's because what we do in our Christian life, mature or immature, whatever we do, it is always done under the all-seeing eyes of God and that we're to live our life in in pleasure to Him, biblically, His way, not our way. So whether we're strong, we shouldn't judge the weak. And whether we're weak, we shouldn't judge the strong because we all serve God, Lord, Christ together. So keep your focus upward. Whatever you do, we have to give an account of who we are. Now that being said, let's go back to our simple little exposition here. Back, if you will, at verse 4 here. The second area that he says here, if we want to get along better with one another, it's because the Lord supports each of us. Interesting passage here. It says, who are you to judge the servant of another? We wouldn't do that in the practical world. I, I can't really judge or give a bonus or take a bonus away from some other person that's in another company. I have no job. I can't do anything with him. He belongs to someone else. In the spiritual context... Who am I to judge the servant of another? Meaning, you don't serve me. You serve the Lord. You answer to the Lord. So I ought not to judge you because the judge is God and he judges me and you. I don't have to judge you. Then it says, to his own master he stands or he falls. That means, if I'm strong, I'm going to stand or fall underneath the judgment of the Lord. He will stand. And then it says, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So he's the one who supports all of us. So in a sense, everyone is weak before the Lord and everyone needs the Lord. So liberated believers view rigid, self-righteous legalists as being without joy and legalists sometimes view liberated Christians as having loose living, low spirituality and those things that maybe would hinder them from being all that they should be. And the bottom line of that is 
wherever those people are, liberated or legalist, as Christians, they all stand underneath one master, which is the Lord. Let me go to number three. You're going to move along here a little bit more rapidly. Because the Lord is sovereign over each of us. Kind of fits real well with verse four. Verse uh, five through nine is a little longer. So let me take a moment here and read through this for you so you can follow along. It says, one person regards one day above another. Now for a moment here, who do you think in the crowd do you think Paul is speaking about? Who do you think? One person, one person thinks one day is above another. Who do you think that would be? Who do you think? It would be the Jewish people. Why would that be? The Jewish had, what, six days? And on the seventh day, what did they have to do, everyone? Rest. It was a Sabbath. And the Sabbath had a whole group of responsibilities that you could not do. And you had to really restrict yourself for that one day. And so in a sense, as you looked at that whole week, that one day was elevated as that is the day. That is a special day. And that's what this is talking about. Mostly speaking to the implication of the Jewish people. One person regards one day above another. Another then says, no, that's not the important day. He, he's going to regard another day. And then he says, you know what? Every day is important to the Lord. I think most Christians, wouldn't you agree to that? That every day is before the Lord? Do we only worship on Sunday, yes or no? We worship all the time because our worship is inside of us and we worship with him purely and accurately when our heart is right. So whether it's in the morning, the afternoon, the evening, whether it's at work or play or at church, it's all worship. Now we may designate a time that we corporately get together and we worship at a certain time, but that doesn't make this more mystical, magical, or better than the other times other than that we have this opportunity to get together. Now not building the argument that you don't get together, what I'm speaking about is it doesn't matter what day that you would get together upon which to worship. Can you imagine how many churches today have maybe split because they had service in the morning and now they wanted to institute an evening service and a number of people says, no, we don't come back, we don't need church twice. Or if they said, you know what, we worship on Sunday, that's the day Christ rose from the dead. You want to worship on Saturday? Why do you want to worship on Saturday? That's not the day Jesus rose from the grave. And so that little group of people will marginalize the other group of people and now you've got a division amongst the people and then some people don't drift off to find another church because they don't agree with that. No day and no time is sacred. We've chosen corporately to select Sunday morning because that's the time that Jesus rose from the dead. That does not mean that it's a magical better day and it's the day God wants us to worship. Have you ever thought about why do we worship in the morning sometime between 10 and 11, 11 and noon? Have you ever thought about that? I didn't know until I pastored in upstate New York and I got schooled up there. I wasn't going to change the time, but I had different people in my church and they were telling me this is why we have our services because I wanted to move, I wanted to add a service at 8 o'clock in the morning. So he then could have Sunday school in the middle and then the worship service later. And I had a bunch of pushback from the 8 o'clock, and that's how I got school. And they said this. They said, you know, in the old days, maybe 150, 200 years ago, if you were a dairy farmer, you had to milk the cows. If you had a farm, you would at least have at least one or two cows to take care of your own family if you weren't a dairy farm. And generally, the cows would give their milk in the morning, twice a day in the afternoon. And so the Christian farmers could not come early in the morning or at other times. So they adjusted the worship service times mostly around the times that they would milk the cows. And that's how the schedule got to be at this time in the morning. So again, there's no sacred day. 
So in the future, should the leadership of this church sense that perhaps for greater facilitation of your growth, as well as the growth of this church, that it might want to add a service in the morning or add a Sunday night service or add a Saturday night service, that it's not unspiritual to do that. Now, pragmatically, you could ask some questions that might factor into the decision, but it's not based upon are you more spiritual or less spiritual. What might be the case is if you begin judging one or the other, that might then call into question your true spirituality, not what day we do it. Well, let's go back to the passage. It goes on to say, each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Where do you want to worship? When do you want to worship? What's your special day? It says, he who observes the day, observes it for whom? The Lord. So when you make your decision, it's, I want to glorify the Lord, and I have no right to judge someone else and question why they're going to worship the Lord. Now, let's go a little bit further on that whole issue. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to pick out changing of services. Do not read in this that the new guy that might be coming in is going to want to change services. That's not anything in our discussion. I'm just trying to lead you through some practical things as a faith family. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us Make It Clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Thank you.